You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Amen. Okay, it is great to see you today, and we are starting a new set of sermons called Joseph and Jesus today. So it's going to take us a few months to work through this, but we are going to be in the back part of the last 14 chapters of Genesis. And so you'll want to make sure you have your Bible open and uh, kind of flip to that Genesis 37 and beyond, that area. And uh, let me just start by a few things to kind of develop the context and and get us going into uh, where we want to head this morning. If you think about Genesis as a whole, it's an interesting book. In the first 36 chapters of Genesis, you have got a ton of ground covered and roughly 2,000 years of history that fits into those first 36 chapters. So there's a lot happening in Genesis. When you start, it's Genesis uh, 1 and 2. God just created the world. That's a big deal. So you've got that whole event happening. You've got Genesis 3. You've got our first parents, Adam and Eve, um, introducing sin into the universe um, when they uh, took a bite of the forbidden fruit. And you've got the fracturing of God's good created order that happened in that moment. And you see the effects of that play out from there on. In Genesis 4, you've got Cain murdering Abel, and you see the disaster that happens um, out of Genesis 3. But if you want to kind of get a picture for what the Bible is about, Genesis 3.15 is a pretty good place to look. When When you think about the overarching theme of the Bible, it is about God fulfilling the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15, that out of the woman there would come a man who would crush the head of Satan. The Bible is really about that. God fulfilling that promise that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus, um, that that crushed Satan on the cross. And so what you have in Genesis is is the continual and progressive unfolding of how that promise would come to fulfillment. And so that takes you like to Genesis chapter 12, where we're introduced to a man named Abraham and about how God's going to be fulfilling this promise through Abraham and his descendants. And that takes us to Isaac, Abraham's son. And that takes us to Isaac's son, Jacob, and how God's going to be fulfilling his promises of Genesis 3.15 through Jacob and his descendants. And that takes us to Genesis 37, Jacob's family. He's got 12 boys and... God bless him right there, right? He's got 12 boys and and one daughter, and that's where we're introduced to Joseph in Genesis 37. And when you get to Genesis chapter 37, it's almost as if uh, we have like a pause in the plot line. We have a slowing of the story. If you think of it in movie terms, you have kind of the, the camera pans into this one man, his life roughly 93 years are covered in Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. So you've got this slowing of the plot as the Bible zero ends on this one man, Joseph, his life, circumstances, and history. And so you've got this slowing down as we are introduced to Joseph, our man. And uh, this week, I was just thinking in terms of, if I were going to try to write a trailer for the movie of Joseph, what would that trailer sound like? What would be the words of that trailer? And, and here would be the, the, the words, the trailer that would preview the life of Joseph. And if you've read those last 14 chapters of Genesis, you know it is a remarkable story of pain, of the purposes of God, of the providence of God. It is a remarkable story full, full of everything you want in a suspenseful plot. But, but here's how uh, my trailer would go. Something like this. The story of Joseph is a storied presentation of providence. It puts Romans 8.28 that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose in story form. 
It is a tale of conflict and character, of evil and envy, of murderous rage and rebellion, of sexual temptation and severe trials. It's a breathtaking story of a man moving from a pit to a prison and then to prominence. It's a story about the invisible hand of God guiding the visible affairs of man to his good purposes. It's a story that shows us that because of Jesus, the greater Joseph, God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the schemes of Satan, by the plans of man, and by the myth of coincidence. It's a story intended to remind Israel then and the church now that God our Father can be trusted even in the dark. This is the story of Joseph. This is the life of Joseph. This is the content of these 14 chapters that finish off Genesis. So here's what I want to do to start. I want to give you three reasons why we're studying the life of Joseph. Why these 14 chapters are going to get our attention for a couple of months here. Why it is that that Joseph is front and center for us. Number one is I really want Joseph to be our friend. For our church family, I really want Joseph to be our friend. If you think about uh, this question. Why is it that these 14 chapters exist in the Bible? Like, why is it that we have the life of Joseph zoomed in on and and given full display for us to see? Why is that? Now, there's a lot of levels you could answer that question on, but here's one level that is definitely right, definitely a part of that answer. That I think one of the reasons we have this story in the Bible is because God knows that we need it. God knows that we need it. God knows that you need it and will need it. God knows that I'm going to need it. it. It's interesting when I think back over the last 12 or roughly 12 years of ministry now, I have sat across the, the table from people in some of the most darkest and painful seasons of their life. I'll never forget walking into a hospital uh, waiting room. I had a friend that had just died. And I walked into that room and I saw his brother, when he got the news of that, come unglued in that waiting room punching holes in the wall. I mean, just some of the, the worst and chaotic moments of people's lives. Um, sit across the table from people with uh, the loss of a child that is just front and center, the, the loss of a spouse, the loss of parents. I mean, the, the list gets so long when you start talking about this, right? I mean, so, so you're talking about sitting across from people um, in, in a season of just real difficulty, the, the season of maybe it's a job loss, maybe it's a friendship loss, maybe it's rejection and betrayal, maybe it's rape, like all of those, sit across the table from them in those sort of moments. And do you know what I found in those moments? That Joseph has been good medicine for the soul. That this story of Joseph and God working in his life has been great medicine. You know, one thing I've learned about suffering, and if you've been through intense suffering, you know this to be true, that it is very difficult in in seasons of really dark and heavy suffering to believe a couple of things about God. One is that God is with us, and two, that God is for us. It's really difficult to believe that. And the story of Joseph gives us proof that both of those things are true. That in in, in seasons of really intense and dark suffering, that God is both with us and for us. And we need to be reminded of those in those seasons, don't we? We need that. I've seen that this story, when God mixes the contents of these chapters together, proves to be great medicine for great pain in us. That that these chapters do that. That that God has a way of using this story for our good as we read it. So I want Joseph to be a good friend. I, I want the next time that you're in a season of suffering, I want you to remember Joseph and to go back to Joseph and to consult Joseph. 
So that's number one. Number two is I want us to be prepared for suffering. That I want you to be prepared for it. I want to be prepared for it. I want our church family to be prepared for it. I've said this numerous times, but I view one of my roles as your pastor is to prepare you for suffering. For for the inevitable seasons uh, that we're going to walk through of, of just severe trials in our life. So this year, we have worked really hard to that end. We started the year in, uh, in uh, 1 Peter, where it is a story, it's a letter written to Christians that are suffering, saints that are suffering, Christians that are in the crucible of intense pain. That's 1 Peter. So we spent a lot of time working through suffering and the theology around it and some of the, the details about it, what God's up to in the middle of it. And the life of Joseph is another prime place to go in the Bible to develop and to help people prepare for their season. Like, here's the thing. We are all going to have the, the pits of Genesis 37 and the prison cells of Genesis 39. They're coming for all of us. It's called life in a broken world. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. And it's very important that we are prepared before we find ourselves in the pit or in the prison. It's very important. Listen to D.A. Carson as he tries to explain and impress upon us the importance of preparing for suffering. He says it like this. He says, One of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. Now listen to this next couple of lines. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained. Now let me just pause right here and say this. Everyone in the room, we're all theologians. Some of us are just better theologians than others. But we're all theologians. We all have deeply ingrained beliefs about God and what God is up to in the universe. The problem is it's varying degrees of how accurate those thoughts about God are. See, this is the issue. If we don't make sure our thoughts are accurate before pain and tragedy and the pits and prisons come, we find ourselves in deep trouble. Here's what he goes on to say. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained in us, if they are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. See, this is what happens when you aren't prepared for personal tragedy and loss and pain. Is, Is what should be Very, very difficult. A dark, dark season turns into an absolutely devastating and destroying season. Because we have not thought through suffering and how God relates to it and what God is about in doing it. We have all this ingrained stuff in us about the way we think God would work that is out of step with the Bible and how God has revealed that he works. So one of the things I want to be really diligent to do for you is to help you think through that. So that when you find yourself in the pit, in the prisons, that you are well prepared for that moment. And Joseph is a prime place for us to go to help prepare our heart for that. And here's number three. Third reason. So number one, I want Joseph to be our friend. Two, I want us prepared for suffering. And number three, I want us to learn to see Jesus in all the scriptures. I want us to learn to see Jesus in the entire Bible. Let me ask you this question. What part of the Bible is about Jesus? What part of the Bible is about Jesus? Now, you got to be careful how you answer that because chances are it's not going to be right. 
So you got to be careful. What part of the Bible is about Jesus? For most people, they would answer like this to that question. They would answer, well, the Gospels are obviously about Jesus. That's like his life and his work. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are. Generally, the New Testament is about Jesus. But that's what's about Jesus. Gospels, generally the New Testament. But that is not all that's about Jesus. That the entire Bible is about Jesus, right? Okay, so let me let, allow Jesus to answer th- this question for us. What part of the Bible is about Jesus? This is his response. This will be in Luke 24, verse 25 through 27. It's up on the screen for you. So here's the context. Jesus had just been killed in Jerusalem, and you've got a couple of guys who are walking down the road to Emmaus, and uh, they're bummed out that Jesus has just died. That They were looking at Jesus as the hope for Israel, and their hope was just crucified and killed and placed in a tomb. And all of a sudden, a stranger joins them on the road that just happens to be Jesus. That's an odd way, way to see Jesus here. So he, he happens to come in and start chatting with them on the road, and he totally butts into their conversation. He looks at them and says, well, what are y'all talking about? And they say, well, unless you've lived under a rock, you're going to know what we're talking about. Jesus has just been crucified. Hope of Israel is no, he's no longer there. He's gone. And, and then this is what it says. Jesus' response to them in that moment goes like this. Luke 24, verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now when he says Moses and all the prophets, he is essentially saying the entirety of the Old Testament. All of it. So from Genesis all the way to the end, it is all, he's saying, it's all about me. Listen to what he goes on to say here. So with, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is trying to make it clear to us here. It's not just the Gospels. It's not just the New Testament that is about Jesus. It is the entirety of the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. You can go to any place, any part, any passage, any page of the Bible, and here's what you should fully expect that page to be about. Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. When you open up the Bible, there are a lot of lowercase heroes in the Bible, like like Moses, like Jonah, like uh, Noah. You've got all Abraham. You've got all these guys. Our man Joseph. You've got all these lowercase heroes. But there is only one uppercase hero of the Bible, and that's Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. I love how one author puts it. She says that every story in the Bible whispers his name. Every story whispers Jesus. Every story is pointing forward to what God has done for us in Jesus. So we could be talking David and Goliath. We could be talking Noah and the ark. Whatever story you want to bring up or bring out of the Bible, they are all a shadow of who Jesus is. They are all pointing us to the hero of the Bible. Now, okay, so we're saying that all the Bible is about Jesus, but this is not the most prevalent way that people read the Bible. If I were going to kind of put words on the most prevalent way people see and read the Bible, it would be through a moralized lens. In other words, when we look at the Old Testament, and maybe a story in the Old Testament like Joseph, we start thinking like this, that there are good guys and there are bad guys. We should be like the good guys and not like the bad guys. But, but here's the problem. In the Bible, God's going to say this about us. We're all the bad guys. 
There are, there's only one good guy. His name is Jesus. And God has sent the one good guy to help the bad guys, to save the bad guys. That's the story of the Bible, what God has done for us in Jesus. When we read the Old Testament, there's going to be plenty for us to see that, that affects our life, things that we shouldn't do and things that we should do. But the primary point of any story in the Old Testament is not to give you kind of a moral tale and good moral things to do. That is a point, but it's not the point. The point in every story in the Old Testament is to point you to Jesus. Okay, now it, it's one thing to say that, okay, I get that, you know, like Isaiah 53 could be about Jesus. I get that. Like it's called the fifth gospel because Jesus is just everywhere in it. But how is like Leviticus about Jesus? How is, like when we're reading the law, how, how is that about Jesus? So, so there, there's some of those places that seem like it's a little bit difficult. How, how is David and Goliath about Jesus? And so let me um, read one person's response to that. And it's going to be a little bit of an extended quote. So hang in there with me as he describes how the entirety of the Old Testament is about Jesus. He says it this way. He says, we also see people in the Old Testament who perform various kinds of service analogous to the service that Jesus performs perfectly. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus Christ is the last Adam who passed his test in a garden and in so doing imputed his righteousness to us to overcome the sin imputed to us through the sin of the first Adam. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who although he was innocent was slain and whose blood cries out for our acquittal. When Abraham left his father and home, he was doing the same thing that Jesus would do when he left heaven. When Isaac carried his own wood and laid down his life to be sacrificed at the hand of his father, he was showing us what Jesus would do later. Jesus is the greater Jacob who wrestled with God in Gethsemane and, and though wounded and limping, walked away from his grave blessed. Jesus is the greater Joseph, who serves at the right hand of God the King, extends forgiveness and provision to those of us who have betrayed him, and uses his power to save us in loving reconciliation. Jesus is the greater Moses, in that he stands as our mediator between God and us. Like Job, innocent Jesus suffered and was tormented by the devil, so that God might be glorified, while his dumb friends were of no help or encouragement. Jesus is a king greater than David, who has slain our great, our, our giants of Satan, sin, and death, although in the eyes of the world he was certain to face a crushing defeat at their hands. Jesus is greater than Jonah, in that he spent three days in the grave, and not just a fish, to save a multitude even greater than Nineveh. Furthermore, when Boaz redeemed Ruth and brought her and her despised people into community with God's people, he was showing what Jesus would do to redeem his bride, the church, from all the nations of the earth. When Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem, he was doing something similar to Jesus, who is building for us a new Jerusalem as our eternal home. When Hosea married an unfaithful, whoring wife, whom he continued to pursue in love, he was showing us the heart of Jesus, who does the same thing for his unfaithful bride, the church. Finally, when God's people sought to keep their homes free from filth through various Old Testament rituals, they were showing that their lives were filled with the filth of sin and they desperately needed Jesus to come and make them clean. See, from Genesis to Revelation, 
all of the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. Every page, every passage, every place that you turn, we always need to be looking for Jesus. And so when we turn to Genesis 37 and we start looking at the life of Joseph, it's very important for us not just to moralize it, not just to pull some things that you should do differently, I should do differently. There's going to be plenty of that, but that's not the primary point. Joseph, his primary point, the reason he's in the Bible is so that we will see clearly Jesus. That's what he's about. So now I want us to learn that. I want us to see that. Okay, so here's what I want to do this morning. Um, We are going to take three broad statements and use those as kind of three broad strokes that make up the content of the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph. So three broad strokes that kind of paint the picture of what we see happening from Genesis 37 to Genesis chapter 50, those 14 chapters. So with that said, here's the first one. Broad stroke number one goes like this. That when we think the life of Joseph, this story, here's what we see first. That this is a story that is soaked in sin. This is a story that just bleeds and soaks sinful people doing sinful things. And so let's let's just trace this. Starting in in chapter uh, 37. Look at verse 3 of Genesis 37. This is a story soaked in sin. This is what we see in Genesis 37. In verse 3, it says this. Now Israel, also named Jacob, two names, same person, Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So more to come on this next week, but but here's one of the first things we see. We see the sin of favoritism in a father. We see a passive father who favors one of his kids. And we see how that sin of favoritism cuts like a knife, like a sword through his family, through all of his sons. And, And we see that this sin of favoritism was used by Satan to stir up hatred in in the lives of of Joseph's 10 older brothers. That they all hated Joseph because his father was favoring Joseph. So so you've got this whole thing playing out right off the get-go. Passive father that favors one son. You've got hatred that brews up. His favoritism is the occasion to stir up the sin and unbelief in Joseph's 10 older brothers. So this is just right off the bat some of the sin that you see soaking this story. And then you keep reading in Genesis 37 and and Joseph gets these dreams about how his brothers are going to be bowing down to him. And Joseph, like a punk 17-year-old that he is at this point in the story, doesn't have the awareness and the common sense to know that if he tells his brothers these stories about what God has told him, about them bowing down to him, that it's probably not going to go well in light of them hating him already. But Joseph doesn't get that. He's an arrogant 17-year-old. So what's he going to do? Of course he's going to tell him the story. Just like you would probably do if you were the younger brother and, and you had brothers that hated you and you were 17. So he unpacks the stories. Hey, I, I just got two dreams of how you are going to be bowing down to me, your little brother. And, and then from there, their hatred just grows. It just festers. They nurture their, their hatred, their envy, the jealousy until it takes full form in verse 18. Look at Gen- Genesis 37, verse 18. It says, they, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. No longer their brother, he's just a dreamer. 
Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into, into one of the pits. Now, I just want to point this out, and, and more to come next week on this, but just want to point this out, that it is amazing how in one chapter of the Bible, you see hatred, that the seeds of hatred grow into the full, like, mature, premeditated, murderous plot of these brothers. Just see that. In, in one chapter, just a few verses, it goes from the seeds of hatred in their heart to a premeditated murderous plot. Now, I hope that that serves as a wake-up call for us that are nurturing the seeds of sin in our heart, the seeds of hatred, the seeds of jealousy. That needs to be a wake-up call. You, you see in that one chapter, a small seed of hatred grow into that. And it gets worse for, for Joseph. Look at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, here's what they did. This was the active part of their murderous plot. They stripped him of his robe, uh, of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, essentially saying, we're going to leave him to die. Now, this is a stunning picture of sin, isn't it? I mean, just feel that. I mean, just think what it would require for you to say to your brother, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to throw him in a pit, leave him to dead. He can just die there. He can just waste away. Hunger, thirst, whatever gets him first, I'm good with either one. This is hard-hearted, calloused, bold, brazen, all black letters, sin. A stunning picture of it. But but then it even gets worse for Joseph. So you keep reading down here in, in verse 25. Uh, before he dies, they see a group of Midianite traders passing by, and they think, well, why kill him when we can profit off of him? So they sell him for 20 pieces of silver, just like a piece of meat. They sell their brother. They sell him. Now, if you're a, a mom or a dad and you've got sons and daughters, think about that. They just sold their brother for 20 pieces of silver. This is Big, bold sin, soaking this story. Okay, so then you just start reading forward in the story. You get to Genesis 38. It's going to make for a really interesting sermon for multiple reasons. When you read it, you'll see why. But one of those reasons is because God sees the wickedness of people, and it's to such an extent that he looks at them and says, I'm going to kill them on the spot. And that's a picture of God we don't like to talk about very much, isn't it? God's actually holy. And, and that, like sin is a no-go for God, kills them on the spot. Then you get to Genesis 39, and, uh, and, and you see sin continue. The, the story is still so, soaked in sin in Genesis 39. So Joseph is sold to the highest bidder, and Potiphar is that man. He takes Joseph home like a piece of meat. He's just a slave in his household. And the problem is not Potiphar. The problem is Potiphar's wife. Look at verse 7 in Genesis 39. The Bible says that she cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. This is a lady blinded by lust. No regard for her husband, no regard for God, no regard for Joseph. All she can think about is how to get Joseph in a bed with her. That's all she can think about. She is blinded by it. And the Bible says this goes on day after day, that she kept seducing him. She kept trying to lure him in. So you've got this continual seduction of Potiphar's wife. And that leads to the point where... um, she makes her biggest and kind of most brazen attempt through the story. She, uh, she essentially tries to rip the clothes off of Joseph. Gets him alone, tries to rip his clothes off. And when he refuses, 
she is so enraged by that that she frames him for trying to rape her. Now, I'm just saying, this is like all cats' crazy sin soaking everything around this story. I mean, th- this is all caps, sin, bad, really bad, soaking it. And, and one of my hopes for us over the, the upcoming months is, is that God would use this story to awaken in us an awareness of sin. That we would not just see sin in this story, but we would actually see sin in us. That we would not just see the seeds of hatred growing and, and, and fully maturing into trying to kill a brother, but we would actually see the sins of hatred in us. And that God might use this story to create a season around Stonegate where sin is thought about with the utmost seriousness. Not just the sins of others, but our sin. And that God might use this story of Joseph to arouse up in us a want to put all sin to death. Amen? That God would work in us in that sort of a way. So it's a story that is soaked in sin. But it's more than that. It's also a story that is soaked in suffering. Suffering permeates the book, permeates the passage. These chapters are chock full of suffering. And here's one of the things that we see in this passage, in in these chapters, is that when people sin, suffering, suffering always follows. When when people sin, it always produces suffering in some way, shape, or form. You never sin in a vacuum. You never sin in such a way where other people aren't affected. Your sin always, always, always produces suffering. Always does that. And so let's let's just kind of trace it through here. In Genesis 37, here's how suffering plays itself out. Is you've got Joseph feeling the pain of rejection. He's feeling the pain of rejection. So, so his brothers hate him. He's got, he's a favorite, favored by his father, and that favoritism produces hatred in his brothers. And listen, they can't talk to him. You start reading in Genesis 37, and the tension and the hatred is like palpable. It's, it's like permeating the story. It's, it's like filling up the air of the story. That they hate him. They won't talk to him. So, so he is taking on the suffering of rejection. But, but it grows from there. It's not just the sin of his father that leads to favoritism and hatred of his brothers. It's actually the sin of his brothers. You get to, to Genesis uh, j- chapter 37, verse 23. And we just talked about this a second ago. They stripped him and they threw him in a pit, leaving him for dead. Now, um, this is where it's really important when you start reading through passages like this that you don't read too quickly. Like when you read verse 23 of Genesis 37, stripping a man naked, throwing him into a pit. There are sights and there are sounds that are associated with that, aren't there? If you just picture stripping a person naked, throwing them in the pit to kill them, think about the, the sights and sounds. You're obviously physically abusing a person. You've got a person that's obviously crying out, begging for his life. When his brothers recount this story and and recall it later on in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, they talk about it like this. They said that that we're remembering how he he was distressed in his soul. when, When you're stripping a man naked, throwing him into a pit to kill him, you have got a person that is distressed down to the bottom layers of his soul. This is what you have happening here. This is the suffering of of Joseph. And, And then they say this, that he was begging us for his life, but we would not listen. 
I mean, when you're throwing a person in a pit to kill them, you've got a person screaming at the top of their lungs, please don't do it, begging for his life from his brothers. And yet they toss him in. This is the sort of suffering that you have here. And, and then you go on to, to chapter, chapter 39, and you see um, the suffering of Joseph take the form of slavery, being falsely accused and sent to prison for multiple years, at least two years. Now, can you imagine sitting in prison falsely accused for years of your life, feeling like you're, literally your life is just wasting away in front of you? I mean, can you feel that, what that feels like? I mean, that is terrible, isn't it? Just to think about that. Sitting in prison, his life wasting away. This, this is Joseph. This is the sort of sin, and this is the sort of suffering that soaks this story. And, and let me just, just real quick here say this, that one of my hopes is that this story would serve like an immediate sort of a way the people in our church family who are like right now in prison and, and in the pits of suffering. I, I really hope it does that. You know, one of the things that when you're in the pit of suffering, sometimes it's really hard to see that there's actually like light at the top of the pit. Sometimes it's really hard to feel that. And you know what the story of Joseph shows us? It, is that there's actually light at the top of it. When, when we're in prison, sometimes the prison of suffering, sometimes it doesn't feel like there's any hope. But you know what the story of Joseph shows us? shows us is that there's actually hope in the middle of that. There's actually hope. And then here's, here's the last thing. It's not just a story st- soaked in sin. It's not just a story soaked in suffering. It's a story soaked in the sovereignty of God. And this is why there's hope in the middle of our suffering, isn't it? This is why there's hope in the middle of people sinning against us. Behind all the suffering and all the sin that is laced into the story of Joseph, behind all of that, we see a God who is actually sovereign. Like behind all the little coincidental things, the sort of chance things, aka like Joseph goes from being a nobody in Canaan to the, to the prime minister of Egypt. What is the chance of that? I mean, that's like one and a billion odds. And here's what we're seeing behind the story of Joseph is that there's actually no such thing as chance. There's actually no such thing as coincidence. There's actually no such thing as as luck. Behind all of those words stands a sovereign God who is directing the affairs of men and women, who is directing the affairs of Joseph. See, behind all the sin and suffering in these 14 chapters, we see a God who is sovereign over all of it. Amen? We see a God who is directing and moving and orchestrating everything for his glory and Joseph's good. That's what we see. We see a God who is absolutely sovereign. So now, here's what we see happening in in this story. When sin and when suffering and when sovereignty... When those three things collide, we have got a portrait of providence, of providence. So that is a word that is not um, often used in our culture that I want to like reintroduce to us because it's a good word and a word that we need around here. So let me define it. Here's what providence is defined. And by the way, this is a word like the Trinity that uh, you're not going to find in the Bible. Like if you do a word search for providence in the Bible, you're not going to find it. 
But like the Trinity, it's used, theologically speaking, to describe what we see taking place in the Bible. So providence is a word that we use to, to talk about when suffering, sin, and sovereignty collide, what is produced. Okay, so, so uh, I'm going to let the Heidelberg Confession, it's a confession written about uh, 400 years ago, answer this question for us. What is providence? What is that? So it, it, it asks this question. Verse, or number, question number 27 in the Catechism says this. What do you mean by the providence of God? Here is the answer in the Heidelberg Confession to that question. The almighty and everywhere present power of God whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that the herbs and the grass, the rain and drought, the fruitful years and the barren years, the meat and the drink, the health and the sickness, the riches and the poverty, yea, and all things. So when it says all things, like we're talking all things, like everything, everything that comes into our life, everything that happens, every event in history, all things, pleasurable things, painful things, all things, like all things covers it all. It's all of it. Okay, you see in that. So here's what he's saying. And all things, painful and pleasurable, come not by chance. There is no such thing as chance. There has never been one thing happen by chance in your life. There's never been one thing in the universe happen by chance. So, so all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This is providence. That all things, painful and pleasurable, come not, not by chance, not by luck, not by coincidence, but from the, from the hand of a good and gracious God. That's where they come. But by the hand of a sovereign God. See, when we talk providence, here's what we mean. That God is in absolute control of all things. Absolute in his control. That he is orchestrating, ordaining, and, and organizing the affairs of history. The affairs of your life. And part of providence means that God is sustaining the universe. This is uh, Colossians 1.16, that he holds all things together. So do you know the reason that your heart's beating right now? Providence of God. The providence of God is the reason. Do you know the reason that, that your lungs are breathing? The providence of God. Do you know the reason gravity is continuing to work right now? The providence of God. That he's sustaining all things. Part of providence means that he is governing all things. That he takes all things, painful and pleasurable, and he turns those to accomplish his purposes in the world. This is what providence means. Maybe you could say it this way. Providence means that there will be, well, maybe say it this way, that all things that come into your life, all things, everything that passes into your life passes through the hand of God. Never around it. Do you know that? Painful and pleasurable. All things that pass into your life pass through the hand of God to get into your life. And God has committed himself, determined that he will turn everything that passes into your life for his glory and your joy. If you're a son or daughter of God, that he will turn all things for your good, work all things for your good. This is what providence means, that everything that passes into your life passes through the hand of God to get to your life. Okay, so, so in this story, here's what we see. Providence illustrated. 
That this is like the premier place in the Old Testament to see providence in story form, to see a portrait of providence. So look at uh, Genesis chapter 45 and you'll see it really clearly. Genesis 45. In Genesis 45, we see these words, starting in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph. And I want you to to make sure you underline these words or or star, whatever you have to do to, to make sure you see this. I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you brothers sold into Egypt. Okay, so I just want to say this really clearly here, that Joseph is looking at his brothers and say, you brothers made real and willful choices, and you, your intention, what you did was you sold me into Egypt. You threw me in a pit, you stripped me naked, you sold me into slavery. That is what you did, brothers. You did that. You're free and your willful choices, you did that. He goes on. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Again, you sold me. You did it. It's a real choice and a willful choice by his brothers. But then look at the last half of verse 5. And I want to make sure you underline this. For God sent me before you. Hold on. It just said it was his brothers. And now it's saying, and it's God who sent him over there. Are, are you, we seeing this? We seeing what's happening? Verse 4, brothers, you sent me here. Verse 5, it's, it's, now it's not his brothers evidently. Now it's God that's sending him there. So in verse 5, it says, For God sent me before you to, pre- to preserve life. Verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7, And God sent me. Verse 4, it's his brothers. Verse 7, again, we see it, and God sent me before you to preserve you for a, remnant, uh, for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so now he says this, so it was not you who sent me here, but God who sent me here. He has made me a, a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all the house and ruler over all of Egypt. Are you seeing what this is saying? Like the, the, the weirdness of Genesis 45. Joseph is saying, looking at his brother, he's saying, you made real and willful choices and you sent me here. And then he says three times, actually it wasn't you, it was God who sent me here. So who sent him there? That's the question. Who did it? And the answer is both did it. In one sense, in a secondary sense, we would say this, that the real and willful choices of Joseph's brothers sent him to Egypt. In a secondary sense, in a, in, a, in a little yes sense, yes, they did it. But if we want to answer the question from a, who ultimately did it, who was orchestrating everything in the life of Joseph to make this happen, who is ultimately responsible and behind it, it's God. Three times he's saying, it's God who did this. You know the pit that I was in? You, you know the rejection that I felt? You know being sl- sold into slavery? You know being falsely accused? All of that, God was doing it. God was behind it. See, this is what providence means. This this is the picture of providence. Maybe you could say it like this. 
that God brings about all things he wills and does throw, so through the w- real and willful choices of people. That's providence. That God is wise and smart and sovereign enough to take all the evil that people do around the world and to orchestrate that in such a way that he accomplishes everything he wants to accomplish. Maybe you could say this as it relates to providence in this story. That as it relates to Joseph's brothers and their real and willful choices to, to sell Joseph into slavery, to kill Joseph, all of that. We, we could say this about it. That God overrules their intention in the act while bringing about his intention through the act. This is providence. This is the God that we serve. That He is big enough to do that. Let me say this one more time, that God overrules their intention in the act while bringing about his intention through the act. So if you were to ask Joseph and his, Joseph's brothers, hey, what were you intending to do when you uh, threw him in a pit, sold him to slavery? They would say this, we determined to kill that guy. We wanted him gone. That's what we wanted. And if you were to ask God, here's what he would say. You know what I was up to? I was actually about placing Joseph exactly where I wanted him so I could fulfill my purposes. See, I am overruling their intention in the act, and I'm bringing about my intention through their act. That's what I'm about doing. If you were to go to Potiphar's wife, and you were to say, hey, um, what were you up to, Miss Potiphar? She would say this, I wanted to sleep with that man, and when he wouldn't do it, I wanted that man dead. That's what I wanted. And Joseph, and, and the story of Joseph is telling us this about the providence of God. That God looks at that and says this, I am overruling her intention in the act, and I'm bringing about my intention through the act. What, what she meant to do, all the evil she tried to create, all I was doing was orchestrating my will and my ways, my plans and my purposes to get Joseph exactly where Joseph needed to be so I could bring him up to prominence. That's what I was about doing. This is the providence of God. That when you find yourself in the pits of suffering, in the prisons of suffering, that we can know that there is a kind and gracious and benevolent and good God who calls him our father for a Christian, who is working it all for our good. Amen? So I'll close with this. That although Joseph is the premier place in the Old Testament to see the providence of God on display, to illustrate the providence of God, he's really just a shadow of Jesus, who is the supreme place in the Bible, the primary place in the Bible, to see how the providence of God works itself out. Like, Joseph is really just a pointer to and a shadow to Jesus, the greater Joseph. So think with me for a second. Just like our man Joseph, Jesus, the greater Joseph, went to his brothers, the people of Israel, and they rejected him, didn't they? That they sold him for a few pieces of silver, but rather than throwing him into a pit, they threw him up on a cross where they wanted him dead. Amen? And we would look at this and say, who was behind that? Who did that? And we would say, in one sense, there was real and willful choices made by real people, like Pilate, like Herod, like the people of Israel that all caused that, that all brought that about through their sinful, evil decisions and choices. But ultimately, who would we say is behind it? Acts 4 gives us our answer. Acts 4, 27 through 28. That God overrides and overwhelms and overrules the intention of people in their act of evil to bring about his intention through their evil. So this is what we see happening. Acts 4, this will be on the screen for you, 27 and 28. 
For truly in this city, there were, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So are they responsible? Yes. Do they have real and willful choices? Yes. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all conspiring to get Jesus killed. All of them, their intention is, we want Jesus dead. Verse 28. But what did they actually do? All of those people, all their, all their intention, God overruled them to do this, to do whatever your hand, God's hand, and your plan, God's plan, had predestined to take place. This is providence. That God can overrule the sinful actions of human beings and create his actions, orchestrating his plans, bring to fulfillment his plans in the middle of it. And, and just like our, our man Joseph, who God used in his providence to save many lives, that the God walked through the pit, walked through a prison, rose to prominence so, so he could save many lives. In the same way, Jesus is the greater Joseph, isn't he? Who, who God didn't just use to save the, the local lives of a few people in the ancient Near East, but to save millions of lives across the world today. Amen? That it was through Jesus, the greater Joseph, that God looks at the world and says, I sent him ahead of you so he could save your life. And you know, like Joseph, J Jesus didn't stay in the pit. Joseph didn't stay in the pit. Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the tomb. Jesus, at the end of the day, God actually rose both Joseph and Jesus to prominence, didn't he? That, that just like he rose Joseph to the king, to the prime minister of Egypt, he rose Jesus to the highest place. Philippians 1 and 2 is going to tell us that one day every knee is going to bow to Jesus. That the Jesus today is actually the King Jesus. Actually ruling, sovereign over all that we see. This is the Jesus we know today, isn't it? And this great and all-powerful King Jesus, and this is the great news of the gospel, just like Joseph, in our rebellion, in our sin against him, he looks at us and he says this, I, I, I will, if, if you'll give me your sin, I, I will extend to you my mercy and forgiveness. See, just like Joseph is a picture of the forgiveness of God, Jesus is the fulfillment of the forgiveness of God, isn't he? Who, who says, if, you, if you'll give me your sin, I, I will trade it for mercy. I, I will pronounce over you justified. I will reconcile you to God. I will save your life from sure death. I will save your life from the wrath of God. I will save your life from hell and an eternity without God. I will save you. Thank God for providence. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.